We've been going through the life of David, looking at this man, this king to be, looking at how God works in the life of, of one man given to us in the Bible, but then considering how we can learn from him, how he changes and develops, how he grows as a man, as a person, so that we might learn what it means to be a person who, in relationship with God, grows. And if we were to have some maybe intro music for today's sermon, it would be Simon and Garfunkel's classic song, Sound of Silence, that begins with the words, Hello darkness, my old friend. Because as we arrive in 1 Samuel 27, we find a man who is in despair. A man who's given up. Perhaps that emotion is familiar to us. Perhaps we know somebody or are somebody who's experienced the diagnosis that the cancer is back, that we thought we'd beaten has returned. Or we know what it is to to have a loneliness that no number of conversations can fill. Or we know the feeling of of being weighed down by by singleness, being desperate to be married, to, to feel that love that is unique to you. And yet all you hear is other people getting married, other people having children, other people being happy and you feeling left on the shelf. As David himself writes, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Rock bottom, the blues. That is the reality that some of us, maybe many of us, have experienced. And maybe even today some are are undergoing right now. What do we do? What do we do in that moment? What do we do when despair overwhelms us? That's that's where we find David. If you've not been with us in these studies, if you're visiting visiting today, David is, when we initially find him, a, a shepherd. He's a young boy youngest of a a big family he's the forgotten one and yet the one who God calls chooses the one who outwardly is not impressive nobody looks at him and thinks here's a leader here's a warrior here's a king they just look at him if they even remember him and think just a shepherd and yet God calls him and says on your life I have got a, a design I'm calling you, anointing you, choosing you to be king of my people. And we see great successes in David's life. But we see that success begin to turn on him as the current king of Israel. Feels resentful and jealous and eventually seeks to to hunt David down. He's a, a faithful servant who's hunted like a traitor. And we saw a few months ago a great account of David having the opportunity to, to take the life of the man who's trying to kill him, to solve all of his issues in a single stroke. And yet we've seen twice that David refuses to, to take the plunge, refuses to take matters into his own hand. Twice he has passed the test. Will you take it or will you wait? Will you be patient? Will you trust? And so just like last week, where we were coming in 1 Samuel 25, 
on the back of one of those accounts of David sparing the life of the current king, Saul. Well, so we arrive in the same place today. Let me read you the end of chapter 26. So on this occasion, Saul has come with his army. And they've camped and they've, they've basically cornered David and his men. But God causes, causes them to, 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 be, to be blind to David. And so David and his uh, a servant walk into the middle of the camp through all these soldiers right into the tent of the king. And yet he doesn't strike the king down. The man who is hunting him, the man who is making his life miserable. At the end of that chapter we write then, Saul said to David, may you be blessed, David my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. There's great deliverance by God. If you read in the story, Saul should get David. He's got all the men, he's got all the armory, and yet God delivers David. And David shows great faith, great trust that God will do it. And then, and then the earworm begins. The little voice begins to speak to David. How long this time? How many times are we going to go through this? There are only so many places I can run, and I'm running out. I'm at my wit's end. I can't do it again. I'll, I'll fail the test next time. He's distraught and empty. Maybe we can see, maybe we can put into there, think, Maybe it's a little bit like this. He's at that point where he's losing weight. His hair's falling out. He can't sleep. His relationships with those around him are becoming fraught. He's shouting at the kids. The wife won't speak to him. David is in a moment of despair. And it's at that point that the negative thoughts come to the surface. Maybe you've experienced that, where a little thought becomes a bigger thought, becomes a a dominating thought, and it becomes a cycle. There's no way out. I think it's worthwhile saying at this point, whoever you are, whether you've been to this church or been to any church before, the Bible's very real that to, to follow God, to be one of God's people, does not protect you from episodes like this. It doesn't protect you from despair. It doesn't mean that you will live a happy life. Now, there are great promises. And there's the promise of joy even in the midst of struggle and suffering, but no promise in this life of protection from struggle and suffering. And that's where we find David. And that's where we read verse 1. If you're opening your Bibles again of chapter 27, 299 in the Red Church Bibles. But David thought to himself, one of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape, to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. One of these days. It's coming. It's inevitable. One of these days, my number will come up. I won't escape. It will all have been in vain. That's what he thinks to himself. 
I don't know if you noticed as Ewan was reading to us this, this account, but nowhere is God mentioned. I think the writer of these events is, is making a point. There's no God in the passage because there's no thought of God in David's thinking. And so he thought to himself. Literally, it says, he spoke to his heart. He speaks to himself. It's not that David has got a a personality disorder. I think we all speak or, or listen to ourselves. You could call it conscience. You could call it our soul. You could call it your inner dialogue or monologue. We do. We speak to ourselves about the circumstances, the events that we're experiencing, giving our take on it, our wisdom. And I don't think I'm alone in thinking this. I think there's a world of evidence to say that what you say to yourself is important. And maybe you can think of some of the the memes on the internet, or the the self-help books, or the mantras about being true to yourself. Say good things to yourself. Last week we were looking about the need for a Christian to speak wisdom and to receive wisdom from other people. But this week the question is, what are we speaking to ourselves? What are you speaking to yourself, especially in the moment of despair? Let's look at what David says. One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. And if we weren't just taking this part, but we were just reading through the story like we would any other book, I think we'd say, David, will you? Wouldn't we say, David, twice in the last three chapters we've seen that actually God put Saul in your hands, not the other way around. And yet, I think we can also be sympathetic, empathetic towards David here. How much closer is Saul going to get? How many more times is God going to deliver me from the the mouth of lions, so to speak? What else does he say to himself? He says, the best thing I can do is to escape. I think we'd say, yeah, fair enough. That that seems to be a, a fairly good plan. To the land of the Philistines. And here's where we might say, wait, what? Okay, now I get that the best thing might be to escape, but, but there? I was trying to think of some like modern day equivalent of Israel and Philistine. I, I thought, yeah, maybe England and Scotland. You know, for, for an English person to say, the best place I can escape is to go to Scotland or, or Wales or one of these other Celtish, you know, Celtic countries that don't like the English. Maybe we can think of better examples. But this is your plan. This is the best that there is for David. He thinks to himself, I could escape to the land of the Philistines. Israel's cross-border opposition, greatest enemy. The people that David has spent the last few years of his life fighting. The people who over and over again, over across years and decades, are the thorn in Israel's side. Constantly at them, constantly trying to beat them and break them and overtake and rule over them. The land of Goliath, the great giant who David had killed. This is what you think your best plan is? But then 
But then, he thinks, but then Saul will give up searching for me. And he's bang on. That's literally what happens. But when despair resides in the mind of a person, then, then at best they see the glass as half empty. At best. Instead of looking back and looking at the events of the past few weeks and months and seeing how God had graciously kept him in his dealings with Saul, not only kept him alive, but kept him from, from, from sin, from wrongdoing. Twice God has shown David so clearly, and us as the readers, that he's got David's back. But in the midst of despair, what despair brings is a blindness. He looks back and he sees the army surrounding Saul. An army that God had put to sleep. And yet he looks back and he can just count them. So many men. And he looks back and he thinks, oh, they're coming next time. There's no escape. The walls are closing in and all I can see is darkness. I can't even remember the light. He spoke to his own heart and what he said was fear. What he heard was fear. What he increased was fear. His words were full of fear and not faith. How do we know? How do we know that's where David's at? How do we know that this is the the wrong path for David? Because we don't get some great sort of declaration and David was wrong. Well, instead we get hints, clues. We're going to see the consequences of David's actions played out and uh, Ian Fenton's going to share more with us next week about the consequences. But the author gives us some clues. And the first one is that his course of action may get himself out of Saul's grasp, but it also takes him away from from Israel. And this is where we we need to just do, again, a bit of background Bible work and think this is not just about David leaving home. This is about David as a person who has been called by God, one of God's people, leaving the place where God had said, this is the land I'm giving to my people. This is the land of promise, the land of blessing. This is the land where God dwells with his people, where God's people can interact with God and know that they are loved by him and received and welcomed by him. And it's that that he's leaving. He's leaving the place where God says, these are my people. This is the land I'm giving to you as a sign that I love you and that you belong to me and I belong to you. And maybe we struggle with that. We live in a world where we can access the entire world, you know, sat in our bedrooms. And yet in that time, physicality, geography would have meant so much more to have crossed the boundary. Now I'm outside. Now I'm no longer with God's people. Now I'm no longer in the place where God has said, this is what I have for you. A land where God has established his means and his mechanisms for meeting with his people. When David walks across the boundary line into Philistia, he says, I'm walking away from God. 
and walking away from what God has promised to me and to us as his people. And so as we read this, as this is David's plan, this, if we are steeped in the Bible, if we understand it, we should just be going, no. No, not, not out of the promised land. Don't walk away from the promised land. That should cause us to, at the very least, raise an eyebrow. If not, shout out and say, David, stop. Then secondly, notice whose favour David now seeks and whose favour he now finds. So look down again at verse 5. So David goes to Philistia and goes to Gath, the home of the giant Goliath who he killed, and he meets there with the king, Achish. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favour in your eyes... If I have found favour in your eyes. Remember, remember this is David who has such a, a high opinion, even of Saul. Saul is the man who David served, both in battle and musically. Who hunted David, made his life miserable, and yet David would not strike him. Because of his calling. Because he was God's chosen king. Now he's kneeling before another king. A king who is the, a king of the enemies of God's people. An enemy of God. And he's seeking his favour. He's turned his back on God. Remember this is David, the man about whom God said, I've seen his heart. And I'm choosing him. Later, be the man described as a man after God's own heart. And yet here he is begging and sucking up to another king. A king whose life mission is the destruction of God's people. And that should make us go, David, what are you doing? What are you doing? No, it's the end of the chapter, the, the resolution of this as David is encamped here for a period of time. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. In his despair, David makes a decision that just well, a few months later leaves him in a position where the king of the enemy thinks he is on my side forever. Notice 2, verse 5. David's question as he goes to Achish and said, looks for somewhere to live, and he said, why should I live with you in a royal city? And again, that should make us think, hang on, David, you are king-elect. God has promised that you will be king over his people, and now you're going to another king and saying, oh, I don't even deserve to live in a royal city. Even the things that God has promised him, he's now throwing away. Well, there may be more going on there. We read later about David's subterfuge as he turns, tries to deceive Achish as, um, Achish as the king and goes about his own business. But again, I think the author mentions that because we're supposed to think David, royalty, we're supposed to think king of Israel, not refusing to be with the king of Gath. 
And yet, amidst all that, we've got to acknowledge that David's plan seems to be successful. To remember, why is he doing this? To get away from Saul. If I go to to Gath, to Philistia, Saul will give up searching for me. And we read in verse 4, when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. And it seems that in the moment that there is success, that it works. But it takes him away from God's land. It takes him away from God's people. And it takes him away from God's calling on his life. Like I said, Ian's going to think more about the consequences of David's decision next week. But it's good for us to notice in this passage that this decision that he makes doesn't last for a week or a month but for 16 months see in verse 7 David lived in Philistine territory for a year and four months and things do not go well or smoothly and notice too that David's decision made in the midst of his despair doesn't only impact him it impacts his men so look at verse 3 David and his men settled in Gath with Achish each man had his family with him And David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel. David's decision impacts on other people. And it's worth noting that whoever you are, your decisions impact on other people. And that's true of us as a church. As we are battling, maybe in the worst of circumstances... One of the, 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 the lies that we're tempted to believe is that this is just for me. This is just about me. But our decisions impact one another. Our decisions to trust or to turn away don't just impact me, they impact the people around me. They impact our church. And did you notice the methods that David ends up employing because of the situation that he's got himself into? It's pretty gruesome. Look at verse 9. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or a woman alive. This is David who, two chapters ago, we looked at last week, was prevented from being a man of bloodshed against a man who had offended him, a man somewhat deserving of punishment. And yet now we find him trying to protect himself, trying to protect his reputation with a foreign king now going out and wiping people out, men and women. And it should give us pause to thought. And I think the author's trying to say, hey, this doesn't go well. And so again, we return to that question, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? As we watch David's path here, as we see the road that he begins to walk down, we've got to ask ourselves the question, what are we speaking to ourselves? What will we speak to ourselves in the midst of despair? What are we? Will we speak fear? Or will we speak to faith? And that's where we're going to kind of leave our passage till, till next week. But, but going forwards, what do we think is the right option? If David is wrong here, 
And I think he is. What would have been a better story? But David thought to himself. But David spoke to his heart. What is a better story? Turn with me to Psalm 42. It's on page 567 if you've got one of the church Bibles or you could just listen to it. I'm going to read Psalm 42 and 43. Because this psalm is written, we're not sure exactly when, but certainly a point where David is separated from the means and mechanisms that God has given to to be with his people. It's probably at some point that he's on the run. And it's certainly a point where he's despairing. And he's speaking to himself. But this time, well. This time not dominated by fear, but, but by faith. Let me read Psalms 42 and 43 to us. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where, when can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep, in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. That refrain, as he looks into himself and sees the despair, And he says it three, four times. Put your hope in God. Not in yourself. Because that's what he does in our our account today. He puts his hope in himself, in the strength of others. But in this psalm, David himself, at a different point of his life, speaks the truth of faith to himself. And he says, put your hope in God. Remember his goodness. See, he recalls back to days gone by. 
when he knew God's goodness, when he knew what it was to worship with joy. You see, in the midst of despair, we can't see a positive future. I don't want us to hear that this is easy. Again, when despair hits, we can barely see tomorrow, let alone anything beyond that. And what he does, he says, remember what it was and trust that it will be again. Take hold of something that you have experienced and build your faith that you will experience it again. David actually writes this at a time where he he can't go to the altar, to the tabernacle, the place where God dwelt with his people. And so he can't use the means that God has given to his people so that they might know that they are right with him, that they are accepted and loved. He can't take his offering to the priests. He's cut off. But he looks back to a time of joy and then he calls himself then to say, God will do that again. God has not changed. And as we think about what it means for us to to hold on, to not despair, to not give in to the temptation to trust ourselves, it is good for us to know that, like David, we might experience this despair, but, but unlike David, we know more, we've seen more of God's promises to us, God's faithfulness. See, if David went across the the borderline into Philistia, he was cut off from from the tabernacle, this tent that God had given to his people where he would dwell. He couldn't access the priests who would intercede for the people before God. But the Bible tells us that we, we can never be cut off because no longer do we need a physical place. Now, at any point, any time, any moment, we can come to God. Listen to these words from Hebrews. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Written to a people who are tempted to despair. The writer of the Hebrews points us to Jesus. Jesus who knows what it is to be tempted to despair. And maybe the the writer of the Hebrews is thinking about the night before Jesus died where he was assembled with some of his closest followers in a garden, knowing what was to come, knowing that he was going to go to the cross, that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to bear the weight of the wrongdoing of the world. And he's tempted to despair. He sees what he calls the cup, the future that's laid out for him. He says, take this cup away from me. That's his prayer to God. I can't do it. It's too much. Yet not my will, but yours. We have a God who knows what it is to face despair. He knows our weakness, knows our failing, knows knows our struggle. 
and is there for us. Who now, verse says, intercedes for us. Stands in heaven and says, I know them. And I know what they're going through. And they are mine. And we need to know that no circumstance, no event, no struggle can separate us from God. Let me read again from from Romans. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And he answers the question, what shall separate us? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And that is the truth that we need to speak to ourselves when we're tempted to despair. Because in that moment, the obstacles we face seem so big, seem so powerful, seem so all-encompassing. And yet we need the truth that nothing is bigger, nothing is more powerful, nothing is greater than the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. And so I want to encourage as a church, whether this for today or for a tomorrow that's still to come, in the midst of despair, speak the truth to yourself. And it isn't some great moment that then changes the rest of your life. It might just be a small moment that gets you through the next hour or the next day. God knows our pain. He knows our fears. And he will not let us go. He will not fail us. And he will use every circumstance to grow us, to change us, to bless us. Even if we don't see it. So as I finish, I want to encourage us. Don't feed fear in the midst of suffering, but feed faith. Don't feed fear but feed faith. Don't run from his people, but run to his people. Don't run from his presence in his word, in the Bible, through the preached word on a Sunday, through the Lord's Supper when we take that as a church. In the midst of darkness, we're tempted to see these things and to run from them. But run to him and to the means and the mechanisms he's given you. I think we'd say to David, David, stay in Israel. Don't run to the enemy. Let's pray. Father, you know every person here. You know every fear, every circumstance, every doubt, every struggle. You know us and you know this world better than we do. And we pray 
and ask that you would help us to, in the midst of those struggles, whether they are for today or they are in a tomorrow to come, Lord, would you help us to speak truth to ourselves, the truth of the God that you are. Help us to remember what you have done, Lord, that we might trust you for today, that you would bring us to tomorrow where we might trust you again. Father, comfort those who are hurting and struggling today, we pray, and equip us, Lord, for all that you will bring into our lives, Lord, to use, to to grow us, to change us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.